as the children are invited to go to the children's chapel with Nancy or back to sit with their parents. This October, Selwyn has entered a season of stewardship as we consider what it means to belong and to be loved, to belong to God, to belong here with one another at Selwyn Avenue, to beloved one another, to be beloved by God. This morning, these sorts of questions coincide with a text that everybody in this sanctuary probably knows by heart. Bumper stickers, billboards, NFL stadiums across the nation shout this book, chapter, and verse to the world. And for good reason. In many ways, John 3.16 is the sum of the gospel, the heart even. However, these most famous sentences of Jesus are nestled within a peculiar, lengthy conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And if we want to understand the truth behind the bumper sticker, then we need to get to know a little bit more about Nicodemus first. He shows up three times in the book of John. He was a Pharisee. In many ways, he was the Pharisee. He was a respected leader with a serious set of teaching props. He was wealthy, and he sat on the Sanhedrin council along with a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And at this point in the story, Jesus has already gathered his disciples and he promptly began his public ministry at a wedding in Cana begrudgingly turning some water into wine, which, let's face it, as far as miracles go, this one was probably pretty popular. The more he healed and the more he performed miracles, the more folks wanted a piece of Jesus, which by Instagram standards wouldn't be so bad. But Jesus was getting tired of it, and so were the Pharisees. And so we pick up in the Gospel of John, the last two verses of chapter 2, and then a lot of chapter 3. And Nicodemus encounters Jesus face to face. As we all know, once you encounter the living Christ, things never go back to the way they used to be. This is a long dialogue, and so Ivy Cherry is going to be the voice of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus a leader of the Jews, he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the, Son in, send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. It was the busiest, holiest week of the year in the epicenter of religious and political life. His colleagues and his family were finally asleep, and Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Why? Pharisees had been confronting Jesus in broad daylight. So why would Nicodemus, the leader, wait until it was dark? Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was up to no good. Maybe as an authority figure, he didn't want folks to see him questioning his own faith. Maybe because he was rich, he didn't want people to see him convening with the riffraff. Maybe he just needed some space or some privacy or a quiet moment to have an honest conversation with Jesus. The noise of the city, the expectations of his position, the demands of his family, the pressures of life itself. It can all be so overwhelming. Why do any of us sneak around in the shadows? The way I see it, Every light cast a shadow, especially the bright ones, and Jesus was the light of the world. And so maybe Nicodemus was doing the best he could to get as close as he could when he could. For whatever reasons, against all odds, Nicodemus, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, found himself skulking through the narrow streets of Jerusalem and knocking on the door of a peasant from Galilee named Jesus, in the darkness of night. What could possibly be that important? What fears draw us to question the status quo of our own circumstances? Is there a truth beyond what we can control or contain or even imagine? Why do any of us lay awake at night unable to sleep? We've done everything right, not perfectly, but as best we could. We try to be good, we try to do the right things, we believe the right things, we try to pray the right things, but then why do I still feel so overwhelmed? Why am I worrying? Why am I still afraid, Jesus? Why am I so alone? What is it all for if I still feel like this? Why do any of us seek Jesus out in the intimate shadows of our own lives? You see, Jesus continues, we heard about the wine in Cana, 
And we've watched you heal folks, and we've seen the signs, and we believe that these signs must be of God. But what does it all mean for us, Jesus? What does it mean for me? Seeing is believing, and Nicodemus has seen Jesus in action, but there is some other question that is drawing Nicodemus to Jesus. And while he doesn't flat out ask, and Jesus does not flat out tell him, Jesus' identity has major implications for a guy like Nicodemus. Jesus, who are you really? Because Nicodemus built his life on being good, really good, really successful, really faithful. He's responsible and disciplined. Everybody wanted Nicodemus to lead their stewardship campaign, Ed. Nicodemus was the kind of guy that had a generator in a backup generator. He had a savings account in a backup savings account. He was an Eagle Scout. His shirt was always pressed. His golf handicap was better than yours, and yet you liked him anyway. And so he compliments Jesus by acknowledging his power. He says, we know your sons are of God. You see, Nicodemus, he's thinking ahead. He's strategic. He's a planner. How does Jesus fit into this equation of ours? How can the council pivot to accommodate a guy like Jesus? What can I do to fix this whole thing without causing too much trouble? Nicodemus was a man of true faith, and yet he comes to Jesus expecting Jesus to hand him a simple, formulaic bumper sticker that says something like, if you just believe, then you will go to heaven. But instead, Jesus tells poor Nicodemus, no, 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 that won't do. Nicodemus, you're going to need to start completely over. Can you blame Nicodemus for balking just a little bit? This is radical doctrine. Born again? What are you even talking about? New birth? Poor Nicodemus starts fixating on what humans can and can't do, where and when and how they can or can't be born. If eternal life requires a new birth that Nicodemus has absolutely no control over, then what has he been working for all these years? Yes, experiencing the power and grace of God's love, it can lead us to faith. Yes, these people trust the things that Jesus does. They trust that they're sons from God, but they simply cannot or will not comprehend what those miracles say about who Jesus is. Yeah, Jesus, we don't mind what you do. We actually think it's pretty cool. But there is no way we are risking everything we have worked for because you say you may be the Son of God. I mean, Jesus must have been so frustrated. We all love a story of miraculous healing or unexpected redemption, but the gospel is not a Disney story, and Jesus is not a fairy godmother. Here he is, the one sent to usher in the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. 
the radical inbreaking of justice and mercy and peace, not just for some people, but for all of humanity and everyone around him is either jockeying for personal favor or hoping to score some really good wine. The miracles and signs of Jesus were groundbreaking, and in many ways they were rule-breaking. It's not that God's law is irrelevant to Jesus. He's simply asking Nicodemus to suspend his understanding of the rules for just a minute in order to talk about what really matters, which is God's deep and lasting love for the world. Whatever Jesus did pointed toward who Jesus was. Nicodemus, brother, it's quiet, it's dark. I didn't come looking for you. You sought me out. And for one minute, you need to put all your hierarchies and plans and strategies and achievements to the side because we need to talk about the heart of the matter. You see, Nicodemus is talking about what he could and couldn't control, and Jesus is talking about God's love and God's trust and God's salvation, and it's disruptive and it's radical and it extends far beyond the small bubble of understanding and righteousness that Nicodemus was so adept at navigating. You see, God so loved the world that God gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And here's where we get hung up on the bumper sticker. We cannot believe our way to salvation any more than we can earn our way to salvation. God's deep love, it is not transactional. It is transformational. These days when we talk about belief, lots of times we're just talking about a set of statements or facts or doctrines or even ideologies. I believe this or I believe that. But believing, as one pastor said it, is about trusting. And biblically speaking, it's the same word as trust, bestow. And what do you all trust these days out there in the world? What do you trust? The stock market? The NFL? One political party or another political party? The government? The FDA? Perhaps a more faithful question is, who do you trust these days? It seems just like we're struggling to believe in other people as much as we used to. In fact, it seems to be that our society is experiencing a crisis of mistrust. Harvard researcher David Putnam would tell us that our attitudes and our behaviors are deeply connected. And if we are connected to people who live up to their commitments, if we are connected to people in whom we trust, then we become more trustworthy ourselves. And as David Brooks has written, trustworthiness is a reflection of the moral condition of a nation. Well, we haven't been that connected 
for 19 months, and we haven't really been trusting each other so much. We've been isolated. We're struggling with our mental health, with anxiety and depression. We've forgotten what it means to belong to one another. And so you tell me, who can we trust these days? And this is the sort of thing that keeps us up at night. And you know what I think? I think this is what Nicodemus was struggling with too. You see, Nicodemus, he showed up all the time. He was faithful. He worshiped. He prayed. He served. He tithed. He led. And yet somewhere between that first time, he experienced the transcending, transcendent, amazing power of God's love. And this one moment where he is skulking around in the shadows just to meet Jesus face to face in the dark, his life had become an expression of transactional obligation. Nicodemus knew what he believed, but I'm not sure he knew who he believed in. Why do any of us seek out Jesus in the shadows of our lives? Who are you, Jesus? And what is all this for? To believe in someone, it is a relational act of commitment and trust. But it was even more than that with Jesus. To believe was to beloved. And to beloved is to hand your heart over to another. You know, I've always wondered why Nicodemus showed up to Jesus in the dark. But perhaps the better question is this. Why would Jesus trust Nicodemus in the darkness of night? Scripture tells us that Jesus already knew he couldn't really trust the people he met. Peter, the disciples, the church in general. Our track record is not that great. And yet a Pharisee who sits on the Sanhedrin council shows up in the middle of the night by himself and Jesus reveals the heart of the gospel in the middle of the night to him? I heard one preacher say belief is the practice of God's radical love. God so loved the world that God handed over his one and only son, his heart, with great trust. It wasn't a transaction. It is a transformation from the inside out. And you know, Nicodemus' story, it doesn't end in the darkness of night. He shows up two more times in the Gospel of John. Soon after this story, the council begins to pursue Jesus' death, and Nicodemus, sitting on that council, judicious, judiciously advocates for Jesus' fair treatment. And then, down the road, he helps Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body down from the cross to the tomb. And Nicodemus provides between 75 and 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe for Jesus' burial, which, if estimated today, would be over $200,000. For God so loved the world 
For God so trusted humanity with his one and only Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And anyone who would hand their heart over to Christ will have a deep and lasting life with God. Can Jesus trust us? And if so, are you ready to hand your heart over to Christ? Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we are grateful for what you have given us in Jesus Christ. Prompted by your spirit and encouraged by your faithfulness, we lift you, to you the cares and concerns of our hearts, the burdens and the worries of our lives. We pray that the sick would be healed, that the broken would be mended, that the mournful would be comforted. We pray that warriors would yield to peace, that leaders would gain wisdom, that the forsaken would be gathered in. We pray that the sorrowful would be consoled, that the poor would be lifted up, that the anxious would be released. We pray for the children in their growing and for the youth in their seeking. We pray for those making new starts and, um, oh, I lost my place. Um, oh, sorry. Okay. Um, we pray for those making new starts, and we pray for those, what? Okay. And for those nearing a journey's end. We pray for those facing hard choices and for those enduring painful consequences. We pray for those filled with bitterness and for those who are just empty. We pray that your church might claim its potential, that the body of, Je body of Christ might be strengthened by its many parts, that the work of ministry might be done with joy and thanksgiving. We pray all these things in the name of the one who prays for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It takes courage to lead an entire group in prayer. So thank you, Lena. It's also an expression of discipleship and faithfulness for which I give thanks. As we begin to consider what it means to belong and to be loved, as part of our stewardship season, I invite one of our mission co-chairs, Chris Barr, forward to offer our invitation to discipleship, along with Miss Veronica Glover. Thank you, and uh, good morning, friends. Uh, we'll see if my voice can hold out here after a very exciting uh, midweek App State um, win uh, over Coastal Carolina. Um, 
So first of all, I, I appreciate the, uh, the chance to share why I value uh, the church and remain committed to help sustain it. As I reflected, two key aspects and analogies um, came to mind. The first was the aspect of belonging. Uh, recently, our men's group, we discussed a podcast called Finding Fred. During the podcast, it was 13 episodes, and we discussed, and it discussed, 31-year run of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And what that children's show can teach us of how to get by in today's chaotic world. Central to the broadcast, and in hindsight, which may have been a ministry, um, Fred Rogers' message of, I like you just the way you are. That simple phrase carries weight and is in short supply in the world. However, it's in center stage and in abundance here in Selwyn. The next thought I had was around mission-oriented. As a household with two pound puppies, I'm constantly reminded of how appreciative souls are that receive kindness. Recently, I similarly saw a bumper sticker, and that bumper sticker was a dog's paw, and the paw said, who rescued who? The first, that was a great reminder to me of first, how actively Selwyn creates and curates opportunities to love others and as God has loved us. The second was how participating in those activities creates equal, if not more, benefit for those who participate than those who benefit. So in summary, as we are in the midst of stewardship season, I would ask you to consider the value in sustaining the, an environment that is mission-oriented and who likes you just the way you are. With that, I would like to introduce Veronica Glover. As Lori said, she's the executive director for the Greater Enrichment Program, um, which is yet another program that your stewardship has made possible here at Selwyn. Good morning. I love coming to Selwyn. I love this congregation. I love the leadership. Greater Enrichment Program is just so, we're so grateful. My name is Bronica Glover and I am the Executive Director of the wonderful Greater Enrichment Program. And I'm so excited to be here. Can you guys believe that we have been partners and collaborators for almost, it's almost five years now. And you guys have made a tremendous impact on Greater Enrichment Program and the students at Montclair. I'm looking out and I see my friends and I see Ellen. I'm looking for Mr. John Lemon. I'm looking for Mr. Andy Johnson. I'm looking for everybody who, and I'm so grateful for everyone that has really been a part of Greater Enrichment Program and Montclair. It has been amazing. You guys have made such an impact from our after-school program where we served in our first year, 40 students, we made an impact on their lives. You guys made an impact because you allowed us to be there. We transformed students by having, they had a safe space. Um, they were getting academic support and positive mentorship from our, you guys opened the doors to your church. We were in there, not tearing up your fellowship hall, but we were in there when the rem for remote learning center. 25 families didn't have internet, students didn't have lunch, you guys donated snacks. It was amazing, it was absolutely amazing the impact that you all made. 
Then summer camp, learning loss, students were, they needed recovery, literacy, support, and to see the smiling faces of our Selwyn partners. It was absolutely amazing. You guys are a shining star when it comes to stewardship with Greater Enrichment and Montclair. But we would love to see more of you all. Uh, we had martial arts on Friday. We had a, a lovely youth from the church. I see him sitting up in the balcony that came out and taught martial arts. Because of you all, the students' lives at Montclair have been impacted. And you guys are changing the trajectory of students who, the least among us, these are families who, they don't get the experiences. I believe because of our connections here and our partnership, we had family, uh, families that went to a football game they didn't get to go to, yoga has been brought into the school, um, Read Charlotte initiatives. It has just been amazing. I just want to say if you have a time, if you have time, you have a talent, you have treasures that you want to share, come on. We would love to have you. And it's important that you guys know that that little bit of time, that little bit of effort that you put makes a big deal, makes a big impact. Over 100 students now that we've, we've impacted through this partnership, and we're so grateful. Monday starts and kicks off National Lights On for After School um, Week. It is a national celebration where um, we celebrate keeping the lights on. You guys have kept the lights on at Montclair, so give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> so I could sit up here all day and talk about your impact and how amazing you guys are, but again, we would love to see more of you all. You guys just seeing the students, coming in, talking to them, um, providing any sort, of, any sort of talent that you have will make a, a meaningful impact on their lives. And I just want to say we are extremely grateful on the behalf of my board chair, Mr. Ken Lober, and our, and our founder, Bishop Georgie Battle Jr. I want to say thank you, Selwyn. You guys are amazing. And I can't wait to see what the future holds for Greater Enrichment Program in Selwyn Avenue Presbyterian Church. Thank you. We're just lucky to buckle our seatbelts up and come along for the, the ride, Ms. Glover. Thank you so much for being here. Now let us present our tithes and our gifts and our offerings back to God.
join me in the prayer of dedication. Generous God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have shown us what it means to love. By your covenant of grace, write your law of love on our hearts. Give us unwavering passion and tenacious faith until the hungry are fed, the oppressed find peace, and the outsider belongs. You are our God. We are your people. May our commitments and offerings of time, talent, and treasure exhibit God's reign to the world. Amen.